Well, First John, uh, we've been hearing our weekly messages from this letter for over a month now, and we last left off with John's teaching on love. Now, John, to summarize, this is what John says. He says, God loves us. God loves us. And because the love of God is in us, we are now able to genuinely love one another. If I phrase it a bit differently, John is saying this, our love for God is reflected in our love for others. And John makes the point, he says, listen, friends, we can't see God. We can't see him. But we love him by loving the brother and the sister that we can see. John Bloom, uh, who's a writer, he says this, uh, we, if we love God most, we will love others best. Now, um, in today's passage, uh, chapter 2, uh, John, he makes another deduction about love. And the point that John makes is this. If the love of God is in you, yes, you will love other people, but also, if the love of God is in you, you cannot love the world. Like water and oil, loving God and loving the world are mutually exclusive. If the love of God is in you, you will love the things that he loves, and you will hate the things that he hates. Or, as one of our other cultural prophets have said, Tupac Shakur, as he so eloquently put it, I'm down for you, so ride with me, my enemies, your enemies, because you ain't never had a friend like me. John, as he talks about love, he's saying this, if you love God and the love of God is in you, you will love the things that he loves, and the things that he hates, you will hate. And so as we summarize this idea of what, what Christian love is, we can say two things. First, we can say that Christian love is benevolent. If the love of God is in you, you will love one another. But as it is benevolent, it's also exclusive. If the love of God is in you, you can no longer keep loving the things of this world. Now, today's message, um, I just want to go over what John is saying, um, go a bit more in detail about what he means by don't love the world. And so I'll ask a few questions. I'll ask, um, what does it mean not to love the world? Uh, second, um, I'll ask and try to answer the question, how can we tell if we love the world? And finally, how can I stop loving the world? So first, what does he mean when he says, don't love the world? Well, if you read this passage and if you read the rest of John and all of his writings, he seems to be speaking about anything in this world that draws us away from God. When he says, do not love the world, what he's trying to say is, don't love anything that draws you away from God. Anything that attempts to replace God as the source and the giver of pleasure, joy, satisfaction, significance. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, the world, this is his definition, he says, the world how should we understand what John is saying when he says, do not love the world? He says this, what he means by the world is the combination of things, 
that draw us away from God. Now, I do need to be clear here because we can love the things of this world. We should, in fact, love certain things in this world. We should love things in this world insofar as they draw us to God. For instance, we should love creation. Things in nature, nature we should love and, in, and adore because it reflects God's power and his glory. We can love nature because as we see it, we see who God is, and it draws us closer to God. We should love people in this world. Why? Because we believe that everyone is endowed with dignity and glory as they are made in the image of God. And so by loving people, what happens? We are drawn to God. And if I can go a step further, we should love the unlovable, especially the unlovable. Because when we love the unlovable, we are becoming more like God. And we gain greater understanding into who God is. Further, things in this world, uh, the arts and the culture. We can, and perhaps we should love the arts and culture. You know, as a regular human being, I enjoy a good meal and a good book as much as the next person. Christians, we believe in common grace. We can enjoy and revel in things of this world. You know, I think entertainment often is wrongly scapegoated in the church. The arts and culture, these things are things that God gives to us so that we may enjoy Him. They are His gifts. So, certainly there are things in this world that we can and should love because they draw us closer to God. And we love them for what they are, they are pointers, they are signifiers, they are reflections of God. But by the same token, John, he is warning us against loving things in this world that draw us further from God. He's warning against loving things that may have a God complex, things that are sometimes good, but sometimes so good that we begin to find pleasure and satisfaction and approval and our identity and being in those things. What does John mean when he says in verse 15, do not love the world? Well, I think what John is doing is, I think he's warning us against idolatry. You know, in chapter 2.15, do not love the world and the things of this world, I think is the exact same thing that he says at the very end of his letter. Do you know how the Apostle John ends this letter? He says this in 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, what a way to end a letter. Imagine if you got an email, and this is the way the person ended it. Keep yourselves from idols. But this is what John means when he says, do not love the world. Do not take the good things of this world and make it ultimate. 
do not love the world. Now, okay, so if John is saying, hey, listen, don't take the things of this world and find your significance, find approval, find your being in it, right? The next question that we can ask is that how can we tell if we're loving the world? And John, he actually gives us examples in verse 16. If you peer down into your Bibles, if you look down in verse 16, John, he actually gives us three examples. And he says this, the three things that are not from God but from the world are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, let me just give this to you straight. What does this mean? Um, If you look in the New Testament, um, Paul and other writers, they tend to spell this out. But basically, what John is saying is the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, are sexual immorality, revenge, fits of anger, dissension, division, drunkenness. The desires of the eyes, greed, envy, jealousy, worrying, sexual stimulation. And the pride of life, as we expound on it, it's, it's boasting in possessions, trusting in goods for life. Now, with these three examples, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, I think we can gain some insight into what John is saying and really think, how can I tell if I am loving the world? Well, if you look at the first example, right, desires of the flesh, right, um, plain and simple, desires of the flesh, most oftentimes in the Bible, it's referring to sexual immorality. Now, the Bible never teaches that sex is bad. No, in fact, sex is good. When God creates it, he says it is good. However, when you desire sex to the point that you're willing to cross all boundaries, that you're willing to go into immorality, if you desire and lust after sex to the point that you're seeking it outside of its design, outside of marriage, this is how you know that you're loving the things of this world. We can take the next example, revenge. Yes, justice is good. We should be seeking justice. But when it turns into a personal vendetta, into a personal seeking of being vindicated, when it turns into revenge, that's when you know that you're seeking and satisfying. You're seeking to satisfy the cravings of the flesh. You're loving the world. Or anger. It's good to be emotional. God created us to be emotional beings. But when our emotions morph into annoyance, displeasure, or hostility towards people, that's when we are fulfilling the desires of our flesh. Dissensions, divisions. Friends, it's good to have opinions and strong feelings. It's good to be strong-minded. But with your strong opinions, if you start to tear down your brother and your sister because of it, with your strong feelings, if you start to create factions, then you are giving into your sinful nature. Drunkenness. Alcohol is not necessarily a bad thing, but excessive alcohol to the point where it controls you. That's when you know you love the world. Or with the desires of the eyes, we can go on and on and on, but even worrying. If you worry too much, 
it might be a sign that you are loving the world. You know, when Jesus talks about worrying in Matthew 6, do you know another way he phrases worrying? Another way to, to, to express worrying is caring about the things of this world. That's what Jesus says. Why do you worry? Why do you care so much about the things of this world? How do we know if we are loving the world right now? Well, you know that you're loving the world if, if a good desire becomes a demand, if interest becomes preoccupation, if love morphs into obsession, and if desire becomes a need. C.J. Mahaney says this, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. There may be nothing wrong with these desires in and of themselves, but once they dominate the landscape of our lives, when we must have them or else, that's how you know you've succumbed to idolatry and worldliness. You know, if I can give just a few examples that are probably practical and things that we deal with, uh, that we're dealing with right now. Um, I had, uh, I met with a friend recently, and he shared with me the first thing that he does in August um, when the NFL schedule comes out is he looks at all the one o'clock games And the reason why he looks at the one o'clock games is because his church service, his worship, is at 12 o'clock, and it bleeds into that one o'clock hour. And he said to me, Stephen, I think I finally understood what idolatry is. I think I finally understood what being worldly is. And I said, what? And he says this, if you revolve your life around that thing, That is certainly an idol. And I thought, yeah. You know what, you say football, but I'll tell you another F word, and that's family. I think family is at times an idol. You know, I've heard so many Christians say, family is everything. But there's nowhere in the Bible where it says family is everything. You know, Kevin DeYoung recently said this, one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians today is that idolatry is the idolatry of the family. Nowhere in the Bible does it say family is everything. How do we know we are loving the world? If we take that which is good and we begin to center all of our lives around it. If what we desire, which is good, becomes a demand, if interest becomes preoccupation, if desire becomes need, a demand, that's how we know. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I find this tension This tension of loving what God has given, enjoying the gifts that he's given, yet not becoming dependent upon them, I think this is a really hard tension to work out. I think this is really, really hard to balance. 
I mean, how is it that we can really love and enjoy the things that God has given, yet not go from enjoying it to seeking approval for it? I think that's difficult. You know, to, to a certain extent, all of us, we all have addictive behaviors. And we all have addictive behaviors because we are by nature worshiping beings. That's why it is so easy for us to go from enjoyment to worship, to go from pleasure to dependence, to go from trust or comfort to trust. And this is a fine line, brothers and sisters. Enjoying it to depending on it. And so, how? How can we stop loving the world? Well, John gives us in verse 17, I think he gives us the reason why we shouldn't love the world and how um, we can stop loving the world. He says in verse 17 this. He says, don't love the world because the world is passing away along with its desires. The world is passing away. In other words, John says this, don't love the world It doesn't make sense to love the world because this world is momentary. It's temporary. It's not worth it. You know, every year or so, um, our family, um, much like most of you, we we do spring cleaning and we start to organize everything in the house again. Uh, We do it either in the spring or whenever we have important guests that come over, because that's a great time to clean. And every year we start cleaning, we flip the house inside out, and we start to organize, and uh, we find things that we've organized and cleaned uh, many, many years ago. And we find it, and we look at it, and we think, hmm, should I keep this or should I throw this out? And always the reasoning is, you know what, I'm going to use this someday. And friends, I'll tell you, that someday never comes. (laughs) Uh, More recently, uh, when we were doing cleaning this year, um, I found um, a really old rice cooker. It was the first rice cooker that my wife and I bought together. It was 10 years ago. It's when we first got married. And, you know, after a couple of years, it stopped. It wasn't functioning correctly, and so we decided to get a new one. But we didn't know what to do with it, so we just kept it. And whenever we moved, we brought it along with us. Now, every year when we clean, I dug it up, and I thought, okay, we might need this someday. And more recently, when we were cleaning, it came up again. You know, I started to think, hmm, should I throw this away? It's 10 years old, not really working. But then I start to have these thoughts, you know what? Maybe, maybe there will come a time when we'll have so many guests over that we might need multiple rice cookers. I start thinking, well, you know, the one that we currently have uh, is manufactured in Korea. This one is manufactured in Japan, so maybe it might be good to have both. You know what? Maybe we might cook Japanese food, and I can take out this Japanese rice cooker. And with that logic, I kept it over the years. And every year when I clean, 
I find it in the same exact spot, and I go through the same exact logic. Now, this happens all the time. I'm sure it happens to you, too, when you clean. You tend to hold on to things and keep things that you think you might need, that you think you might look for. And so we decided, you know what, we need a rule. We need a rule about cleaning and keeping things. And so we, we created this rule. And to be honest, we've been failing miserably at it. But we have this rule, and it's this. We, I bring the item, and I bring it to my wife. And I said, honey, hold this. Does it spark joy? <laughs> All right. that's, that's, that's Marie Kondo. No, but I would say this. I'd say, hey, hold this. And um, do you think that in one year you'll use this? If she says no, then I said, okay, do you think that in one year you'll think about it? If she says no, I said, do you think in one year you'll even care about it? Or will it be another one of those things, a year down from now, it'll come up and you'll say, oh, I forgot. And if the answer is no, then we need to throw it away, or if we can donate it, we'll donate it. You know, John, he wants us to view life in this way. You know, I have a one-year rule. If from one year from now you're not going to think about it, care about it, or even look for it or need it, get rid of it, right? And this is what John says. The Bible doesn't have a one-year rule, but it has an eternity rule. The Bible says this, millions of years from now, when we are in eternity, the things that you care for so deeply now, the desires and the love that you have for right now, will you have the same affections in eternity? And if it's true, and if you will have the same desires, if you will have the same loves, then it's okay. But for thousands of years down the line, when we are in heaven praising the Lord, if you're not going to think about it, care about it, or even look for it, why do you care about it so much now? You know, and John is saying this, set your heart and your desires on things that will not change in eternity. You know, I think sometimes we think that the Bible is like uber, uber spiritual. It's not. The Bible is actually being practical here. You know what Jesus says? He doesn't say, listen, if you want to follow me, you have to be uber, uber spiritual. You know, you have to go vegan. You have to move to Portland. You know, you have to open up a UCD store. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, if you want to follow me, think about eternity. And he makes a real practical argument. He says this, why do you store up for yourselves things here on earth that moth and rust will destroy and thieves break in and steal? Why do you store up and work so hard for things that will not last? He says this, think about eternity. Why don't you store up treasures in heaven that will last forever? See, the Bible isn't being hyper-spiritual here with candles and yoga. The Bible is actually talking about smart investing. Why don't you invest in things that will last forever, love and desire and have affections for things that will not fade. It's actually really smart. 
You know, as, as we talked about family, l- let me just briefly say this, because um, I know there are many parents here, and um, you know, we often fall prey to revolving our lives around our children. You know, parents, we hold too tightly onto our children. And often we, um, we revolve everything around them. And I, I, I'm a victim to that too. You know, after I uploaded all of my photos to Amazon Drive or Amazon Photo, Amazon keeps sending me these notifications. Hey, do you want to look at your photos from three years ago on this exact day? And yeah, sometimes I open it up and I look at it. And then I see my children and you know, how much they've grown. And I've noticed that I've been, I, 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 I hold on to them. And I've been saying this to my kids, my boys who are eight and six now. I hold on to them and I say, hey, do you remember when you were this little? Do you remember when you were this cute and you didn't smell like sweat all the time? I would hold on to them and I say, hey, can you still be my baby? And I, I, I find myself saying that, can you still be my baby? You know, parents, you know, we say it all the time. Can you bring me up? Can you be my princess forever? Can you always be my teddy bear? And the truth is, they are not going to. Because in eternity, your children are not going to be your sons and daughters. In eternity, what they are actually going to be is they are going to be your brothers and your sisters. You know, for young adults who talk about their parents and the difficulties that they have communicating with, your, with their parents, you know, a lot of young adults and college students, you know, they, they can't wait to be independent from their parents and leave their parents because they find it such, uh, so burdensome. You know, when we view our parents in that light, yeah, sure, they are a burden. But that relationship between parent and child that you have, those are relationships that's, that are bound to this earth. In eternity, your parents are going to be your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And so, yes, from the viewpoint of eternity, the relationships that we have with our parents, the relationships that we have with our siblings, our, our spouses, our children, yes, as we view these relationships from the viewpoint of eternity, how should we love and care for them? Yeah, we should love and care for them ultimately with the thought that we will stand with them as brothers and sisters, equals belonging to one father and having one older brother, Jesus. The spouses that we cling on to, your spouse whom you love and desire and, and you cling on to so much, he or she in eternity is just going to be a brother and a sister in Christ. If we have that mentality, if we view life in light of eternity, then we start to think, how can I care for their souls as brothers and sisters? It shifts the paradigm as to how we go about our relationships. For those of you who are really hurt and you're really seeking revenge, For those of you really angry or always constantly worrying, 
those dealing with sins of sexual immorality or sensuality, the cravings of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, the pride in our possessions, would you peer into eternity? Would you peer into eternity? If you do this activity, it is humbling. Because the things that we consider to be so, so important, the hurt that I face, that I must have revenge, and we start to think, you know what? In eternity, it's not that big. You know, the thoughts that, you know what? I am right. My opinions matter, right? My, my thoughts are correct. When you look into eternity, you realize, you know what? I might not even be that correct. And when you look, at, when you do this exercise of viewing your life, from the prism of eternity, you start to realize, you know what, this too shall pass. And you start to seek the things, not of this world, but the things of heaven. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think not loving the world is sometimes a daunting task. Because we can all admit here, that sometimes we do love the world too much. It seems like a real daunting task. But you know what's really interesting when John says, hey, don't love the world and the things of this world? Right before that, this is what he says. He says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And then he says this, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You know, I started to meditate on um, 1 John 2, 15. And, um, you know, it's an easy verse to memorize. It's easy verse. I know that we have our life verses and the verses that we memorize, right? Galatians 2.20, John 3.16, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. These are some of the verses. But let me add one to your repertoire. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world and the things of this world. Easy, 11 words. Please memorize that. Do not love the world and the things of this world. You know, as I was memorizing this, praying upon it, meditating upon it, I thought, man, what a daunting task. This is so hard. But then I, I, my eyes went up, and I saw John writing right before this, young men, you are strong, and you have overcome the evil one. John writes from a position of victory. Fathers, you know him little children, and he's not necessarily talking about physical age. I think he's speaking of spiritual maturity, but he's saying this, young children, newborn Christians, your sins are forgiven. He's saying this, fathers, those who've been Christians for a long, long time, you know him who is from the beginning. And young men, those right now in the thick of things, fighting your spiritual battles, you are strong. You are strong, and you have overcome. You know, there's a, a great philosopher um, by the name of Homer Simpson. <laughs> I 
Uh, he um, said something really, really interesting uh, in one of the episodes. He, there was this episode where he um, and his son, Bart Simpson, had made an agreement. They, they made an agreement that they would um, talk about the benefits of like this MMA, ultimate fighting, or what they called ultimate punching. And they, they, had this, they had this agreement that, you know what, they're going to promote it, and you know, mom hates it, but they're going to talk about how good it is. Now, right before that, um, Marge, uh, the, the wife, gives to her husband uh, this chocolate cake. And he eats it, and he um, forgets about that whole agreement. And so, you know, Bart, he goes to dad, and he's like, Dad, please tell mom, you know, just how good um, ultimate punching is. And then Homer Simpson says, no, you know what? Ultimate punching, it's immoral, it's immoral, it's dangerous. And you know, many studies have confirmed what your mom just said. And Bart's like, wait a minute, something's not right. And he starts to sniff, and he's like, wait, I smell chocolate, frosting, cherry. He's like, she got you, didn't she? And then Homer Simpson, he starts crying. He says, you know, it wasn't just a piece. It was the whole cake frosting like snow on the eaves of a Bavarian castle. And then Homer Simpson says this. He says, I couldn't help it. She knew my one weakness, that I'm weak. And this, for me, was like, oh my goodness. That is me. <laughs> she knew my one weakness, and my one weakness is that I am weak. And I thought, yeah, that's my life verse. But you know what? As I started to read through 1 John again, he says, young men, you and I, young women, who are in the thick of things, fighting and journeying here in this world, he says, you are strong. You have overcome the evil one. Your sins are forgiven. How do you know that you are not of this world, that you don't love the world, that you believe in Jesus Christ? 1 John 5 tells us that you have faith in him. As we navigate this world and navigate through the tension of enjoying the things that God has given us without making it an object of worship, I leave you with 1 John 2.14. You are strong. The Word of God is in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Would you place your trust and your faith once more in the one who forgives you and the one who calls you? Join me in prayer at this time.